Why do Christians do what we do? Why do we live in a particular way? Why do we live differently than people around us do? Well, to go back to the illustration we used last week, when we dress up for a wedding, it's not because we are dressing up hoping that we're going to get invited because of what we're wearing, but rather if we have been invited, we will dress in a certain way. How we live doesn't earn us a place in heaven, but rather because we've been called to belong to God, because we've already been gifted heaven as our inheritance, in light of that we live differently. Last week we looked at some of the new clothes that we wear as believers from verses 12 to 15. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Christianity isn't just about not doing certain things, uh, stopping doing the things that we once did, but it's, it's about living in new ways instead. So what should people called by God look like? To sum up what we looked at last week, called people are loving people and called people are thankful and forgiving people. If we've been truly called by God, that's what we'll be like. We'll be loving people, we'll be thankful and forgiving people. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there and neither should we. Because many of the things we looked at last week are things that non-Christians could get on board with. Many of them would agree that love, compassion, patience and so on are good things to learn. uh, That it's a good idea for us to be outward focused and not to be preoccupied with ourselves. They would agree that it's important for us to care for others and to try and make a difference in the world. But although this outward focus is important for Paul, it's not where he stops. Because he goes on in the last two verses of this section to show that it's not enough to be outward focused because we also need to be upward focused. It's not enough to be outward focused because we also need to be upward focused. And so we see here that not only are called people to be loving people, not only are they to be thankful and forgiving people, But they're also to be worshipping people. And don't you find it? It's so much easier for for even church leaders to speak about the horizontal than to speak about the vertical. I I read a a headline on a Christian blog this week. I just read read the headline. uh, but, But I think it was pretty telling. It said, is it easier to talk about climate change or talk about sin? Uh, You have church leaders falling over themselves to talk about climate change. uh, But how few of those same church leaders would ever talk about sin. Now of course it's not that there there isn't a, a vertical dimension to all that we looked at last week. As we saw last week, Christians are to put on the virtues in this chapter. Because these virtues are seen most clearly in our Saviour. The thankfulness that we looked at isn't just a vague feeling of gratitude. But it flows from what God has done for us in Christ. But here in the last two verses, Paul spells out the vertical dimension even more clearly. Yes, called people are to be loving people. Yes, called people are to be thankful and forgiving people. But even more fundamentally, called people are worshipping people. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, this is the thing that should mark your life first and foremost. That you are a worshipping person, that you're part of a worshipping people. 
As we thought about recently from the book of Nehemiah, joy comes not simply from putting others before yourself, but it comes from putting Jesus first. Jesus, then others, then yourself. J-O-Y, that is where joy comes from. And so tonight we're going to look at three characteristics of worshipping people. Uh, spending most of our time on the middle one. If called people are worshipping people, well, well, what do worshipping people look like? Three things. Firstly, worshipping people are filled with the word of Christ. Worshipping people are filled with the word of Christ. If you live with someone long enough, you soon find out a lot about them. That's not a comment on our current living arrangements. It's just a fact. You can be friends with someone for a long time. You can work with someone for years. But if they come and live with you or if you go and live with them, you'll find out things about them within weeks that you hadn't learnt in years. Well, at the start of verse 16 here, we're being called to take in a lodger, as it were. And who or what are we to take in? Well, we're to take in the word of Christ the word dwell means to make, to make one's home. And just as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We're also called to have the word of Jesus dwelling in us. And if we are to have the word of Jesus dwelling in us, the word of Christ dwelling in us, it's important to know what that's a reference to. Perhaps you have a Bible and it says on the cover, words of Christ in red. And so the words spoken by Jesus when he was on earth are printed in red while the rest of the Bible is printed in black. So is that what Paul means by the word of Christ? Well, all I'll say, say tonight about red letter Bibles is that the first time one was ever produced was 1899. So that's clearly not what Paul has in view. And the fact at this stage in the history of the church, all that we can say for certain that the Colossians would have had would have been the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is the word of Christ. As we saw this morning, the book of Hebrews has no problem quoting part of Psalm 22 as words spoken by God the Son. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Then it quotes Psalm 22. So the Colossians had the Old Testament which is the word of Christ. Perhaps they had some early accounts of Jesus, which would soon be gathered together into the Gospels. Possibly they had one or two others of Paul's letters. If even, that's the, the absolute most they would have had. How privileged we are today to have God's complete revelation as the old Church of England commentator Charles Simeon once put it, we enjoy a complete collection of all that God has ever seen fit to reveal. All that God has ever seen fit to reveal and preserve for future generations, we have it. So do we treasure it? Do we relish it? Do we enjoy it? And do we see how, how relevant this is to what the Colossians were facing? The Colossians were being troubled by plausible sounding false teaching. And if they were to have any chance of not being taken in by it, they would need to have the word of Christ dwelling in them richly. The 4th century preacher John Chrysostom said that the cause of all our evils is not knowing the scriptures. 
The cause of all our evils is not knowing the scriptures. The not knowing God's word is like going into a battle without weapons and thinking we can somehow come home safe. So how are you going to survive spiritually whatever it is that you may be called to face around the corner? How are you going to keep going as a Christian? How can you make sure that you're not led astray? You need the word of Christ. Chris Alstom says that the scriptures are like a chest of medicines and if grief or trouble befalls us, the only way to cope is to dive into the chest. And as we'll see, Paul goes on in the very same verse to pick out exactly the part of the Bible that has been most cherished by suffering and under pressure Christians down through the centuries. One of my favourite authors is Carl Truman. He's English, he's married to a lady from Lewis and he teaches in America. And occasionally when he's asked to talk at conferences, he asks a question, or he did in the past, what can miserable Christians sing? He tried that, that a few times, he would ask at a conference, what can miserable Christians sing? And every time he asked it, people would laugh. They thought he was joking. There seems to be little expectation in the broader Christian world that people who follow a crucified Messiah are going to suffer too. Uh, But we are. And if we're to stand firm, then the word of Christ must dwell in us richly. And now is actually a good time to start thinking through some of the ways that we can make sure that we're going to do that in 2022. How will you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in the year that will be on us before we know it? How can you help to ensure that it's dwelling richly in your family? We have more options than ever. We have reading plans that will cover the whole Bible in, in months or in one year, two years, three years. We have audio Bibles we can listen to in our phones. The Christians in Colossae, they they didn't even have printed Bibles, never mind audio Bibles. Uh, But we have so many ways of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. But there was one way that the Colossians had uh, that Paul will now go on to tell them to make use of. And we can do the same. So having seen firstly that worshipping people are filled with the word of Christ. We see secondly that worshipping people are strengthened by the songs of Jesus. Worshipping people are strengthened by the songs of Jesus. So we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. But that's not just for our own benefit. Paul goes on, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We tend to think of teaching and praise as separate things. You know, maybe uh, we we go along to to a conference and an event and then there's going to be praise and then there's going to be teaching. They're, They're very separate things. But as one commentator says, we don't find that strict separation in Paul's understanding of worship. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. Maybe you've come to church one day and you've been feeling a million miles from God. It feels like your prayers haven't been going any higher than the ceiling. You've started to doubt God's love for you. But then as you start 
As you stand to sing Psalm 103, you hear those around you singing. Maybe you can't even sing yourself, but you hear those around you singing. A father would compassion have upon his children dear, just so the Lord compassion has on those who do him fear. And it revives you. It's enough to keep you going. I heard a great illustration of this yesterday, actually, in a talk that David Whitler gave to a conference in America. David Whitler, who's been here with us a few times, he was talking about the diary of Archibald Johnson of Warriston, one of the authors of the National Covenant of Scotland. Warriston's diary is full of quotes from the Scottish Psalter. And by the way, that's the Scottish Psalter of 1564. Uh, so when we talk about the, maybe the new Psalter and the old Psalter, they, they had an even older one, uh, older th- than the old Psalter we talk about, uh, which those covenanters had memorised and treasured. And one day when he was going through a period of deep depression, Warriston went to worship. And here's what he wrote in his diary afterwards. By God's providence, the people there were singing the 30th Psalm. And when it came to the fifth verse, Though grips of grief and pangs full sore shall lodge with me all night, the Lord to joy shall us restore before the day be light. Oh, then my heart melted again, ever repeating those words, grips of grief and pangs full sore, and praying the Lord to keep his promise. Worriston was taught by his fellow believers as they sang the Psalms. And so when we come to the question of exactly what this debated phrase of Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs means, we can say two things quite clearly, that, that they must refer to the word of Christ and their content must be able to teach and admonish. Well, as I say, it's, it's a debated phrase. It's often used as a proof text for why we're wrong in our church to, to just sing the Psalms. Uh, maybe it's not, not a verse you thought you would hear preached on here. So, so are, are we wrong? Well, as we come to this question, I think it's important not to forget what we looked at last week. Where we talked about humility, meekness and patience. And one of the, the tests of whether we put on humility, meekness, patience and love. Is when we come to areas where we disagree with other Christians. We don't honour God if we win the argument but lose a person. Or if we become proud because we think that we know better than others. Some of our dearest brothers and sisters in Christ disagree with us on this verse and as well as various other verses. And by the way, we will happily accept people in the membership in this church who disagree with us on this. Someone who comes into membership in this church must be prepared to show a submissive spirit to what we believe the Bible to teach. But it doesn't mean they have to be convinced in every aspect themselves. Yes, we'd love it if they were convinced but if you're not yet a member and you disagree with us on the interpretation of this verse that won't stop us welcoming you with open arms but at the same time I don't think you would want to join a church that practiced something merely out of tradition and and couldn't actually give a reason for what they did you wouldn't want to join a church you shouldn't join a church that practiced something not because it was convinced it was biblical but just because they'd always done it 
So, a question I'm, I'm sure we've all heard many times. Why do you just sing the Psalms? Now, the answer to that doesn't completely hang on this one verse. But at the same time, if this verse is calling on us to sing more than the 150 Psalms of the Bible, then we're ignoring a command of God. Because at face value, this does look like a proof text against those who just sing the Psalms. Maybe you've even had this verse quoted against you. It says sing Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So why do you just sing Psalms? Maybe... You've heard people coming to it from the other side and say, well, well, psalm singing is a safe option. We're not really sure if God wants us to sing other things, but at least we're safe if we just sing the psalms. But in this verse, God himself commands us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So if the second two words are referring to something other than the psalms of David, then if we just sing from the Psalter, we're ignoring commands of God. So what is Paul commanding the Colossians here to sing? Well, one of the first questions we need to ask when trying to understand what a biblical author is saying is what did this mean to the original audience? What would Paul's first readers have understood by these words? Because when the Colossians saw the word hymn, they obviously didn't think of the compositions of 18th century hymn writers like Charles Wesley and when they saw uh, the phrase spiritual song they didn't think of 20th or 21st century songwriters like the Gettys that is not, not a criticism of those that have just mentioned it's just a reminder that we can't just look at these words on the page and ask what does it mean to us today uh, these are, are words that were originally written in Greek in the first century what did they mean to their first readers? And so a lot of commentators really struggle with this. Are these titles overlapping or are these three different types of songs? And if they are three different types of songs, how do we distinguish them? What is it that makes them different from each other? But imagine if a songbook existed which used all three of these terms to describe its contents. Imagine if that songbook was in Greek, the language the Colossians spoke. And imagine if these exact three Greek words that Paul writes were used in the titles, the section headings and the lyrics of that songbook. If that songbook existed, and if we knew for certain that the Colossians had access to it, well surely that would be a very strong contender to be what Paul is talking about here. Well, we don't have to imagine. The book exists and we still have it. It's known as the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the version of the Bible that's quoted most often in the New Testament. And in the Septuagint version of the Psalms, which is the only version of the Psalms that the Colossians would have had, these three terms, psalm, hymn and song, are used as titles for the 150 songs that we today call the Psalms. The word psalm is used in 67 titles, the word song is used in 36, and the word hymn is used in 6. And sometimes two or three of these words are used in the title of one psalm. Now if we look at this in our English Bibles, 
will not see it as clearly because our English Bibles are translations of the Hebrew. But if you really wanted to check this out, you could buy or download an English translation of the Septuagint. And this is how the one I have translates the title of Psalm 76. So you turn to to Psalm 76 in the Septuagint, which is a a Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament uh, that was used by the apostles. And, And it says this under Psalm 76. For the end, among hymns, a psalm by Asaph, a song to the Assyrian. So there we have all three of those terms. Psalm, hymn, song, used to describe something today that we would simply call a psalm. So it's not that some are psalms, some are hymns and some are songs. The three words are used interchangeably. So although the word hymn is only used in the title of six psalms, it's also used to describe all of book two of the Psalter. Maybe you've never noticed before, but the 150 psalms are divided into five books. If you turn to the end of Psalm 72 in your Bible, you'll see that that's where book two ends and book three begins. And the book closes in verse 20 of Psalm 72 with the words, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. But if you'd be living in Colossae and reading the Septuagint, it would say, The hymns of David, the son of Jesse, have ceased. And according to one commentator, the word prayers or hymns was the earliest collective term for the Psalms. Now maybe you've heard the objection, well why use three terms if he's talking about the same thing? Isn't that like saying psalms, psalms and psalms? But the Bible actually quite often will use a threefold description to refer to the same thing. Genesis 26.5 talks about commandments, statutes and laws. Acts 2.22 describes miracles as miracles, signs and wonders. And prayer is described in 1 Timothy 2.1 as prayers, supplications and intercessions. And nor is this interpretation of Colossians 3.16 just something that a few obscure Reformed Presbyterians have argued for. An edition of the Metrical Psalter was published in 1673 with an introduction by 26 leading theologians of the day, including the likes of John Owen, Thomas Watson and Thomas Manton, all English Puritans. And in it they say that to them this verse seems plainly to be talking about David's Psalms. And nor is that just an interpretation that the people had back then, but but it's changed now. Uh, There was an article on the Gospel Coalition website recently, probably the leading Reformed-ish website uh, around today. And Christopher Ash, who's part of the Church of England, I think, he he writes this. He says the words translated psalms, hymns and songs all refer primarily to the biblical psalms. There isn't space here to give the overwhelming evidence for this, but they are three ways of speaking of the same thing. It's the interpretation also of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which lists one of the elements of worship as a singing of psalms with grace in the heart. And lists this verse as the first proof text. And interestingly, the, the Baptist version of the Westminster Confession changed that wording. And instead of just psalms, they added in the words hymns and spiritual songs. 
which, which shows that they felt the Westminster Confession was too limited by just saying Psalms. And then there's also the word spiritual. That's a word we tend to use quite loosely today. But in the Bible, according to the standard Greek dictionary, it always refers to the Holy Spirit. The word spiritual in the Bible, it always refers to the Holy Spirit. So it's talking about songs that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. One modern commentator says that because the distinctive role of the Spirit is so basic to Paul's thinking, the word spiritual, especially in modern English, is just too vague to capture his sense. We see the word spiritual, our thoughts don't automatically go to the Holy Spirit, but Paul's would have. And actually that word spiritual, it can apply to all three terms Paul may be using it to describe psalms and hymns as well. If you've seen the new NIV translation, it translates it through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. So that's quite a long explanation. Maybe you'd rather I just given the Gospel Coalition line which says there's overwhelming evidence, but we're not going to get into it. But if worship is the most important thing to do, then we do want to do our best to understand what the Bible's instructions for worship are. And to to sum up the argument, there's only one songbook we know for sure that the Colossians had. All three of these terms, psalms, hymns and songs, are used all over that book to describe its contents. And you could accept that interpretation and still argue against exclusive psalmody. So, this one verse, whatever way you come down on it, it doesn't... doesn't, uh, seal the argument but it's obviously one of the key verses but before we leave verse 16 we can't just skip over the closing words with thankfulness in your hearts to God because the Bible has a name for people who are just concerned with observing outward forms but don't have any love for God in their hearts and it calls them Pharisees In the Bible, it's never just enough to get the outward form of worship right. Over and over again, people are condemned for honouring God with their lips, but at the same time having hearts that are far from Him. Once we start thinking that we're okay or that God is pleased with us just because we've got the outward form right, or we think we've got it right, we're in trouble. Each time we sing, God sees whether it's coming from a thankful heart or whether we're standing mindlessly and just going through the motions. People use the phrase purity of worship. I don't think it's a great phrase because the only way our worship can ever be pure in God's sight isn't if we get the outward form right, but whether it comes to him through Christ the purifier. So a worshipping people will be filled with the word of Jesus. They'll be strengthened by the songs of Jesus. And then thirdly, and as we close, they'll be doing all in the name of Jesus. So thirdly and finally, worshipping people do all in the name of Jesus. Thinking back again here to some of the, the virtues we were called to put on Last week in verse 12, uh, that in verse 13, there we're reminded that we're going to fall out with each other and have to ask each other's forgiveness. 
So there's going to be some tough situations, even in the church. And so how do we know how to act in those situations? Well, verse 17 gives us the answer. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you're to live out this high calling you've received, then there are many situations you'll be in where there's not going to be one verse that tells you exactly what you must do. But in those situations, you're to act as Jesus would act. You're to ask, is this a course of action which if I take, I'll be able to give thanks to God for? Am I doing this through faith in him? Of course, the problem with asking what would Jesus do is that we all have the sinful tendency to to remake him in our own image, as we thought about earlier. You know, it's, it's all very well saying, what would Jesus do? Or I think Jesus would do that. But, but so often we're just pulling it from our imaginations, or at least that's the danger. And so that forces us back to, to verse 16. The more we have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, the more likely we'll be able to answer the what would Jesus do question the right way. But more and more, of course, our world doesn't want us to do all in the name of Jesus. If it means being kind to people, then that's fine. But not if it means standing up for Jesus' moral teaching. A few years ago, one newspaper editorial criticised efforts to add a conscience clause to equality legislation. This is actually the Belfast Telegraph. It said churches, mosques or synagogues are the proper places for people to practice or discuss their religious convictions. And that is where such debates should remain. Keep your religious debates in your churches, mosques and synagogues. So we're being told as Christians, we can do things in the name of Jesus when we come to church, if we really must. But we're not to drag him into everyday life, not into politics, not into our work, not into our family life. But if we truly are a worshipping people, if worship is what defines us uh, and it's not just an add-on that we can take or leave, then it won't just affect what we do in church. Because the more that his word fills us, the more we sing songs about King Jesus, the more we'll see that his authority and his claims aren't limited to those who trust in him. And so we seek to do all that we do each day in the name of Jesus. Knowing that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, our lack of desire for God's word, our imperfect worship and our failure to do all in his name will be no more. Because Christ will be all and in all. Amen.